The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the second episode of Global Business with Mahesh Joshi. In our last episode, we identified the top two components of global trade, crude and refined petroleum. Today, we will discuss the role of oil and gas in global business. Does it drive the business or the business drives it? We have with us today two experts from oil and gas industry right here in Houston, the energy capital of the world. We have Santosh, President and Chief Executive Officer of Lone Star Group. He also serves on the Board of Petroleum Equipment and Services Association. Welcome, Santosh. Glad to be here, Mahesh. Thank you for having me. And also, we have with us today Dr. Michael Grosjean. He is the principal at Grosjean and Associates. He has also served as a faculty at Rice University in Houston and Aston Business School in United Kingdom. Welcome, Michael. Thank you very much, Mahesh. I'm glad to be here. Well, Santosh, Michael, um, there has been an article in Telegraph which says oil is both the lifeblood and poison of the global economy. And I want to pick up on that to start the program today. How important is oil and gas for economy? Great, I'll go ahead and start. Um, Historically, if we think about the control of resources, it confers power to governments and collections of people. Those that owned water rights controlled access to uh, irrigation and crops. Those that owned food distribution points uh, were able to influence communities in those areas. Those that had uh, geographic choke points on trade routes were able to control and uh, moderate the flow of commerce. Oil and gas is no different in the modern age. Oil and gas itself provides power and influence to those that control it. And from that power and influence shapes political agendas, economies, and the market space. Uh, in addition to that, you know, uh, in my opinion, oil and gas is not just a source of energy for the world. Uh, it's clearly the, one of the most important sources of energy for the world today. Uh, in addition, it also happens to be the most important feedstock for many components uh, that are manufactured and enjoyed by the rest of us today that we don't really pay a lot of attention to. Uh, plastics, uh, you know, come to mind as an obvious one. Uh, and, you know, everything from cosmetics and components of cosmetics, um, you know, beauty, fashion, uh, comfort, uh, are all derived out of byproducts of oil and gas. The pervasive nature of what we use oil and gas for 
um, kind of boils down to a couple big things. One of which is it provides us a standard of living uh, that we enjoy and that nations that don't possess would like to enjoy. So it has the potential to influence change in those regions. Uh, and perhaps as importantly, uh, it influences our ability to project our military. The capacity to defend borders or to enforce our policies in an international setting through the use of uh, the force of arms. Uh, it is a not just a, a predecessor to conflict, it is actually quite necessary for us to be able to defend ourselves and to ensure that our our, our national interest is projected appropriately to the world stage. So, so if you put the two together, Mahesh, um, you know, in addition to, let's, let's assume for a minute, you know, given the greening of the world, that uh, our reliance on oil and gas for energy purposes uh, is going to continue to shrink. And I think it, it should uh, as a percentage of GDPs of the various countries. Uh, having said that, though, uh, there aren't any known alternative forms of energy that can fully replace and projections are through the year 2035, uh, oil and gas will still be the source for over 50% of the world's energy needs. Um, plus, you know, with the growth in the base population, um, you know, going to eight, eight and a half billion over the next, you know, 10 to 15 years uh, from the 7.4 or something it is today. Uh, and a majority of that population demanding Western style living standards. Um, I think both the need for energy and the need for feedstock that's driven by crude is only going to go up. So in, from a demand perspective, uh, I don't think uh, the demand for oil and gas is coming down anytime soon. And, and coupled with that, the, the growth of infrastructure in the countries that are actually seeing the greatest growth, uh, China, Asia, India, um, that it's coupled with a, a need and demand for electricity and power generation for both domestic and uh, business sources. Uh, with that requirement, it places even more uh, onus on being able to have access to the reserves that then generate that power uh, requirement for those countries. And if you think about the, the big play right now, particularly uh, in a country-by-country -country study, is the amount of reserves that they can access and control. Uh, because if you do not have ready reserves to power the, the, the electrical generation requirements of your country, then you are at the beck and call of those that supply that particular energy source to you. And so I think that one of the things we're seeing in, in oil and gas within the, the marketplace is the attempt to build depth and resource and the, the attempt to, to, to buy futures in those areas. We look at uh, the purchase in the United States of some of the shale play from uh, Indian oil companies. We look at uh, the, the Norwegian interest in the western coast of, uh, eastern coast of Africa. And so these are, these are market positions to actually secure national interest in the, having depth of resource and reserves. Yeah. And, and, and don't forget um, uh, Chinese, the CNPC, going after assets all over the United States, all over West Africa, and you know, some other unsavory parts of the world, if you will, uh, including Venezuela, which is a whole different topic, which I think Mahesh, we might get to, about uh, the geopolitics of uh, oil and gas. So I think, you know, I would, I would say uh, it is very, very important. And, I, you know, of course, I'm somewhat biased because I'm an oil and gas executive. Um, and uh, I would believe that demand is going to grow. And uh, the difference between demand and supply, we're slightly oversupplied today, but I think that's going to change very quickly. Uh, you know, quickly is relative. 18 to 24 months, we'll be back in a supply shortage. Yeah, I, I absolutely concur. It is important, and it's not going away anytime soon. 
and those countries that can maintain a steady supply of reserves in oil and gas are going to be able to maintain interdependent or independence of action and uh, foreign policy. Perfect. So basically, uh, oil remains the lifeblood of the most gainful economic activity. And uh, there's no chance of that changing in the foreseeable future. In, on the other side of our earlier question, uh, it's it's pretty strange phenomena. Rising oil prices, both deflationary and inflationary at the same time, uh, which is kind of a poisonous economic mix. If the price goes too high, it will depress the economy while simultaneously adding to inflation. More money spent on oil means less for spending on everything else. And the weakening demand will cause the price to start falling at which point oil becomes a powerful reflationary force. That's another character of oil and gas industry. You brought in a very good point about uh, the geopolitical impact of oil and gas industry. Mike, would you like to elaborate a little bit more about that? Sure. I think, as with all you know, dynamic systems, we can't perfectly understand the impact our choices have and then the, the repercussions of those choices by way of example. Uh, not too long ago, we saw a, or a release of the restrictions on production, uh, production rates coming from the Middle East. And the immediate impact of that was that the price per barrel dropped quite dramatically. And some would argue that it was a quite intentional strategy designed to combat the rise of unconventional play in the United States, which you know, some had speculated could create energy independence by 2020. Um, the, the backlash from that, the, the unintended consequence is that it's actually caused innovation to occur to bring the break-even point for price per barrel down by almost 40%. And so it's caused the U.S. Uh, providers to tighten their belts, to get smarter about what they're doing, and actually become fiercer competitors as opposed to being run out of business. Uh, coupled with that is a consolidation of the marketplace, so survival of the fittest. Those companies that do that best are actually the most likely to be strong international competitors in the next 10 years. And so the, the dynamic systems model that we think about is that we've got to be cautious when we start making these changes. And while we might see a one-off linear um, <coughs> consequence that we desire, uh, it might in uh, more complex circumstances come back to, to actually do exactly the opposite of what we're trying to achieve. Yeah, and, and, and to add to that, Mike, um, you know, American innovation uh, has always been on the forefront. You know, we, I think Americans recognize there's waste in just about any system, and particularly um, underutilized or, um, you know, economies that are more maverick in nature, you know, let's talk the Permian Basin, for instance, or the Bakken Shale Play. Uh, there was plenty of waste there to begin with, and people were just drilling as many holes as they could possibly drill um, and produce, uh, cost being no object, given the price of oil was clearly very high. But I think, I think what perhaps the Saudis may have underestimated is that innovation kicks in, and, and you take waste out of the system, and to your point, you know, cost to drill and produce a well is down between 40 and 60 percent, depending on where you are in North America. I think a couple of other unintended consequences was uh, the impact that low energy prices have had on Russia. Um, and with Iran coming back uh, into the world market as a supplier, 
um, I think Americans foresaw that and had to continue to innovate and will continue to innovate. Now, that doesn't mean that value won't flow. I think some of the deeper uh, offshore Brazil, Brazil is a whole different story in itself, uh, will likely suffer, uh, whereas I think quicker, nimbler, quick return projects will likely get funded when prices of oil are pretty low. Yeah, and, and this, is such a, this is such a rich topic. We probably can go five or six more hours on it. Uh, I want to make two more points. Um, the first of which is that for any type of, of you know, one-upsmanship, and this is brinksmanship politics, uh, particularly with the, the, the setting of production rates, um, the firms in the United States and the firms in the rising areas that are using unconventional play uh, are very often just driven by profit and loss. The, that's, they're going to make it or they're not going to make it. But countries that use national reserves as a bargaining chip like this typically have social ventures that are attached to that. And so they actually have less capacity to tolerate a steep drop in price per barrel over the long run. I think that we're seeing, particularly within the Middle East, the Saudis' coffers are running quite dry right now um, as, as they've been able to kind of fund this, this overproduction. And then with the release of sanctions on Iran, it threw a wild card into the whole into the whole mix, which is creating not a market issue, but it's creating a political issue. And I think that as we as we tie all this together, it's the use of oil and gas is one tool of many in the diplomatic and economic toolkits, but that ultimately we have to be quite smart about how we apply that, particularly if in fact we're trying to fund things other than just the profitability of our corporation. So we'll be going for a short break. Uh, we are here with Michael and Santosh, and we are on Global Business with Mahesh Joshi, uh, discussing about role of oil and gas in global business right here in Houston. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Welcome back uh, to Global Business with Mahesh Joshi. We are here with uh, Santosh and Mike in Houston discussing about the role of oil and gas in global business. In the first segment, we discuss how important is oil and gas for us. And uh, we did realize that if you don't have oil, 
probably you can't run the modern economy, you can't move or operate uh, a modern military, and uh, the modern civilization could collapse in a matter of months if the oil stopped flowing. Looks like uh, oil is now almost as important to the developed world as is agriculture. And it has truly become a condition for the continued existence of most of the humanity today. So uh, before we move on to the next question for discussion, let me share something with you. In the year 1903, that's the year which marked the beginning of the success story of the diesel marine propulsion engine in oil is directly responsible for about 2.5% of world GDP. And uh, if you include oil and gas drilling sector, ENP, it makes anywhere between 4 to 5% additional uh, percentage of global economy. Now, let's look at it. How does oil and gas impact the global business or trade? Does the global business drive oil and gas or it is other way around? So I want to, as we move into that question, I want to finish the thought on the geopolitical because that impacts the marketplace. So if you look about what just happened in Nigeria with uh, rebel forces attacking pipelines, it actually is controlling the way the government is doing its business and impacts its market conditions, its ability to export. If you look at what Russia did with the pipeline into Europe and the manner in which it controlled and restricted that flow, it changed or attempted to influence the decision-making within the European Union. And so that has knock-on and direct impacts on the marketplace. So if I were to think about the question of uh, oil and gas impacting the market or the market impacting oil and gas, I would say it's dynamic relationship. I would say with the ebbs and flows of the prices, the technologies used to extract the raw material, and then the, the production of that material into more refined uh, commodities and or high-end items, um, it, it has this uneasy relationship. And so if we think about uh, uh, what a significant amount of the oil producers are doing now is they're diversifying. They're looking at how do we, how do we, it costs about the same amount of money to punch a hole in the ground and take the same amount of oil out in Saudi Arabia as it did in 1970. Um, but the commodity or the sales point you know, downstream is highly variable. So if you look at what they're doing right now is they're building the petrochemical side of it. They're, they're building more durable value into the product lines from that. So less the energy side, but more to what Santosh was talking about earlier, those durable goods that are necessary to the marketplace itself. And it's a quite deliberate commercial strategy. When you think about how do I minimize the cost of my feedstock and maximize the value of the product lines that come from it. So, so that leads, Mike, into, you know, depending on where you are in the world, uh, whether you are a producing nation or a consuming nation, um, the way you would look at that answer would be different. Um, you know, in one case, if you're the producer, that is your economy. Whereas if you're a consumer, you really want to get it at the lowest possible price you can. So if you think about Western economies, that are generally stable at one, one and a half, two percent GDP growth, versus consuming new economies, China, India, that don't have the natural resources themselves, that have to rely on imports, uh, you would think of uh, the question very differently. Uh, it also matters uh, the political system in the country, right? If you are Saudi Arabia, 
and highly reliant on the sale of oil to manage your country's expenses. Uh, Venezuela would be another great example. Um, you know, they, then you are thinking of your entire world as oil and gas and nothing else matters. Now, the Saudis, uh, to Mike's point, uh, have uh, recently come to the conclusion that they need to really diversify out of the oil and gas space. Uh, and it's interesting that they're looking at, uh, at taking the world's largest company public, right? Saudi Aramco, you know, to, to get investors into Saudi Aramco uh, is an intentional strategy away from you know, being one that's driven by oil and gas to one where oil and gas only happens to be a smaller portion of their economy. Venezuela, you know, a, a state that's on, on brink of failure, uh, also needs to do that. So there's really this curse of having, um, you know, being reliant on one naturally available uh, source for the economy. Uh, and to diversify is just a maturity or a maturing of how the oil and gas space works. And the we're talking about countries that have uh, relatively stable infrastructure, perhaps not politically, but certainly uh, in the means of, of getting goods to market and getting them to transport uh, uh, ships and, and to move them through ports. Um, what I'm really intrigued with right now is the creation of global business, particularly in countries that have had precious little natural resource to date. But with the shift and change in unconventional play, uh, you know, Mozambique, Tanzania, uh, the, the eastern coast of Africa, who has actually relatively poor infrastructure compared to their, you know, to the western coast of Africa, which came off the boom of oil, yep. and to, to, you know, European countries to the north, they have got the capacity now of building a marketplace and building a, a global business out of there. We are seeing an influx of countries going in to lay in road networks, uh, water purification plants, uh, energy infrastructure. And that's creating of itself a, a, a micro market for those type of support mechanisms so they can monetize the natural resource that they find themselves sitting on, which they could not have done in the past yet. And, and yet not rely exclusively on one source for their economy to function. And I think that's the challenge, Mahesh, is you know, for policy planners to think about how they maximize the use of their resources uh, without overproducing. You, know, you clearly want a balance in the price of oil that's comfortable both for the producers and for consumers. And I wouldn't say that's $150 a barrel or $20 a barrel. You know, I, think, I think that's somewhere in the $70 to $90 a barrel range. Um, and, you know, to the extent that we can create consistent, predictable, smooth demand, uh, I think the global economy will drive the price of oil and will drive the oil and gas industry. In some countries, like we talked about before, there is clearly an exception because that's the only source of income for the country that they have. And as we think about this generating knock-on markets and, and, if you will, adjacent marketplaces to the oil and gas space itself, um, we're seeing much higher levels of technology that are reliant upon the, the unique creations that come from the feedstock itself and the competing demands for how much feedstock can go into the creation of those and, and what's the demand on that, that, that uh, international marketplace. Um, if we think about that driving it, what we're, I think we're going to see is a continued shift of emphasis away from just pure energy side to the durable marketplace, to the, the high-performance manufacturing, to the, uh, the industries that are designed to actually take advantage of unconventional play to extend the reservoir lives uh, so that they can extract more 
feed stock, which is then required for, again, the consumer side of the business. Uh, and, and, and to add to that, if you, if you think about coal for, for a second, uh, you know, coal primarily only drives energy needs. Um, there aren't derivatives of coal that's used for plastics or other luxury goods or lifestyle items. Uh, and coal generally has a bad reputation for the environment as well. Uh, so there's an interesting play here in North America where, you know, between coal and natural gas, uh, even the green folks would agree that natural gas is substantially better than coal. And natural gas, by the way, is not just used for energy consumption either. It's used, you know, in fact, 82% of U.S. plastics uh, or refining and petrochemical facilities use natural gas derivatives for their feedstock. So um, th- this is clearly a lot bigger and a lot more challenging than we can perhaps do in one hour, Mahesh. Uh, but I, I agree that, you know, Western countries that generally have reliance on more than just energy production uh, will lead the demand for oil and gas um, uh, for non-energy sources. And I think developing countries that are just thirsty for energy will drive perhaps the energy component of oil and gas. And, and I'm going to come back to the point you made earlier, which is growth growth in population, growth in standard of living, the middle class, uh, growth in areas of the world of industrialization that haven't seen it before, all of which demand a growth in the production and distribution of oil and gas products, whether it's high-end or energy-derived. And that growth is fundamental, I think, fundamentally linked to the, the, the business of the oil and gas industry, which then has that, that knock-on effect, the residual effect to all of the global business that surrounds it. So, Sandeep, you brought in a very good point about the curse of natural resources. Now, there are several countries which are petro-economies, countries like Algeria, Azerbaijan, Brunei, Iraq, Kuwait, Libya, Sudan, Venezuela, Nigeria, Oman, Qatar, and Saudi. They depend mainly on oil and gas. Now, are these countries with large oil and gas reserves successful in developing their global trade, or they're stuck with the curse of natural resources, as you were pointing out earlier? Mahesh, I think it depends on the leadership and the political structure within those countries. Um, it's, it's great to see countries like Saudi Arabia that have uh, built nice economies on the backs of oil and gas that are now seriously considering diversifying uh, into non-oil and gas. That's very forward-thinking, and probably the right thing to do, so they're not reliant on any one subcomponent of the economy, of the world economy, to survive. Uh, And then we have seen countries like Venezuela that, um, you know, that have gone backwards in terms of standard living, in terms of availability of just basic provisions for uh, for their citizens. Um, And then there are yet other countries that just don't have access to uh, those kinds of natural resources, uh, China being an example, uh, that are actually striking deals with... uh, uh, with countries like Venezuela or Angola uh, for a barter-like trade where the Chinese are bringing in construction and infrastructure development uh, that would likely not have happened had uh, the Venezuelans not really, you know, managed their economy well. So, you know, I think, you know, again, a very, very complex. There is also the the Middle Eastern geopolitics, uh, some of which are religion-based. And, you know, for instance, the control between Iran and uh, the power struggle between Iran and Saudi Arabia for control of the Middle East and for control of their respective economies. Uh, All of that um, highly influence how 
you know, countries take advantage of their natural resources or not. Uh, in the end, I think it's a maturity of the leadership in those countries that would demand or that would probably set the, uh, the tone for how things are going to work out. Well, that's a very good point, Santosh. At this point, we'll take a break and uh, we'll be back shortly with uh, Mike and Santosh on Global Business with Mahesh Joshi. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Welcome back. Uh, you are listening to Global Business with Mahesh Joshi. We are in Houston today with uh, Mike and Santosh discussing about the role of oil and gas industry in global business. Uh, just before we took the break, we were talking about uh, the countries which largely depend on oil and gas. Is it a curse of natural resources for them or not? And Santosh, you brought in very good points about Saudi and uh, Venezuela. I just want to add, again, from a research uh, from the Center of Global Energy Studies, uh, that Saudi Arabia needs, at the current level of production, uh, to sustain government expenditure at least a price of $86 per barrel. That's not their production cost. This is the price they need. And it used to be almost $64 just four years ago. Uh, that probably has some impact of what you said, the geopolitical happenings in the area. Could be uh, the, the spending went up substantially following the Arab Spring. And you did mention about Saudi Aramco uh, going public. That's the world's largest exporter of crude oil. Not only they own both the world's largest onshore and offshore oil fields, but they are also the world's most valuable company. And uh, you also mentioned about Venezuela. Uh, Venezuela has the largest share of global oil reserves in the world, which is almost 17.5% of 2014. Mike, you wanted to make some comments on it. Great, thanks. Yeah, I want to follow up on Santosh's point. Um, by thinking historically, there's always been this, this interesting tension between the countries that produce oil 
specifically and the countries that use oil specifically. And there was this deficit of flow from where it was sourced to where it was used. And it's probably the past 10 years that we're starting to see that flip quite dramatically. If we think about how historically these were developed, uh, it was a country with access to its own natural resource, but no ability truly to get them out of the ground and to put them into the marketplace. And so private enterprise came in very often in the form of international companies that uh, in some cases were quite exploitative. Uh, they left very little profit inside the company, the country that the oil was taken out of. Of course, people are smart and they learn from past experience. And so what we're seeing now is uh, the, the rise of the national oil company. Aramco has been around for a long, long time. And it's perhaps the gold standard of national oil companies, of what we'd expect it to look like. Um, but other national oil companies very often were quite inefficient. They were driven by political agenda as much as financial objective. They were uh, not effective mechanisms for capitalizing or monetizing the precious natural resource for that country. We're starting to see that, that shift. I think we're seeing a, a swap uh, where these, these companies that are representing national interest are being held to higher and higher levels of accountability, of, of efficiency and capability, and as stewards of those natural resources for that country. And I don't think that's going to end anytime soon. I think what we're going to see is a transfer of dynamic of power uh, in the oil business uh, to those type of entities, whereas those that countries that possess the natural resources, they're no longer cursed with it. They're going to start capitalizing on it. Venezuela's curse right now is not so much about the oil, but that they're so closely tied to oil that they couldn't sustain the drop in the price per barrel. Uh, most of their economy, of course, is driven by that price per barrel. And so it's going to force them to look at diversification. Yeah, I agree. And I think, I think uh, with experience and with maturity, like in the case of Saudi Arabia, um, you know, oil companies that are generally uh, the source of national income, um, you know, and I would include Petrobras, I would include Pedavesa, I'd include uh, Pemex, um, I'd include these large companies that, that have bright engineers and good leadership that in the past uh, were meddled with by politicians for either good social agenda, because they believe that that's the right way to do it, or for just uh, corrupt uh, personal interests, uh, are you know, begin, beginning to get exposed. Um, I, think, I think in a digital data-driven world where you can find out just about anything about anybody online, um, uh, you know, corruption is going to slowly disappear. I think it's just uh, you know, the transparency that, that the new digital world has created uh, will, maybe, maybe I'm an optimist here, but will uh, make these companies more efficient and run without the political interference that they've seen in the past. On top of that, they all recognize that, you know, relying on just one source, uh, and Mike, to your point, given your military background of power, is not a good thing anyway. It perhaps was in the past, but you can't just have one source of power. You need to diversify. And, and diversifying into adjacent or counter-cyclical industries uh, probably makes the most sense. I can see Venezuela going back to the days when, you know, tourism and other forms of industry uh, were as important as oil, but I think I think Venezuela just got uh, addicted to oil, and you know they need to they need to regroup. Um, we also see that uh, with partnerships with uh, call it foreign uh, 
uh, international, you know, non-national oil companies, uh, that can only get better. There's a slight, uh, slightly different dynamic. We, see, we also see where in countries uh, the reliance on domestic production is pretty low or the percentage of domestic consumption is, you know, three or four-fold that of domestic production. There's a natural diversification that those companies have to run efficiently anyway. And a point that was raised earlier about small independence in the U.S., uh, they're highly profit motivated. You know, their returns period are three to four to five years. Uh, not the, uh, call it central planned, uh, longer horizon investments that, um, you know, politically or socially motivated national oil companies uh, generally used to rely on. Uh, all it forces is efficiency and uh, better use of energy and more efficient production of energy, which I think in the end, you know, will turn out to be good for the economy and for the world anyway. And, and the, in my mind as well, the fascinating effect is that the national oil companies are going through a maturation process. They're growing up and, and, and taking world stage. We see Statoil with stakes across the world, not just in the Norwegian shelf, intercontinental shelf. Continental shelf. Uh, we see ONGC. They've got a 30% stake of, of the play just about a, you know, 80 miles north of here. Yeah. Um, we see Sinopec and, and the, the CNUC. Yeah looking at uh, offshore and onshore in South America. And so they're not just confining themselves to their nat- national resources any longer. They're expanding out, and, and they're stepping into the role, I think, of what the IOC pretty much owned as its uh, monopolistic yeah. environment in, in the past 40, 50 years before that. And so it's going to create an interesting dynamic. Uh, I am not smart enough to predict where it's going to land, but I'm fascinated to watch it evolve and grow. That's a very good piece of information. And we all know the oil and gas industry has been going through a downturn for quite a while now. And, uh, you know, when Thomas Edison invented the first electric light bulb, it caused a major recession in the oil industry in 1878. Now, uh, how do you see the industry coming out of the current downturn, especially since the reason for this downturn in the industry is not an economic meltdown. Um, you know, I'll, I'll make an attempt at answering that first, Mike. Um, I think um, it, it depends on where you are in the world. Um, you know, it's, it's hurt the uh, U.S. producers and uh, U.S. first and second tier manufacturers and suppliers into the uh, oil and gas space. Um, it's also hurt uh, offshore, um, you know, Brazil, North Sea, um, and has not yet hurt the national oil companies um, other than, you know, raiding their war chests, if you will, right? Uh, the Saudis can only sustain this price for a couple more years. You know, when we started two years ago, you know, they said they had a four to five year war chest. So we're getting to that point where um, they're going to run out of money in two years at, at oils in the 40s even, um, unless you're willing to give up on their social agenda and get a um, lot more efficient in the way they use proceeds from the sale of oil. Um, I'm also clearly a capitalist, and I think, um, you know, with these downturns uh, come innovation and come efficiency gains uh, and come different ways of looking, you know, it shakes the foundation of the industry. Uh, you have to relook, uh, rethink, you know, what this industry is going to look like. You know, as, as, as an executive that runs a company, um, you know, I'm convinced that the next five years is going to look, look nothing like the past five years. And I have to be strategic in the way I 
uh, redesign our organization, right? Because I think I think the strategies, uh, the tactical plans uh, are obsolete or irrelevant from the past, and we need to come up. And you know, I talk to a lot of my colleagues in the industry, and everyone is focused on what does a new way look like. So you know, and and given that there's enough technology out there, and there was sufficient waste in the way we were doing things in the past, um, you know, I'm convinced we'll come out stronger. Uh, and we'll come out more efficient and we'll use energy more efficiently and we'll use our most important resource, our, you know, our human brains, uh, far more efficiently than we have in the past. I'm, I'm right with you, Santosh. I, am, uh, I describe myself as an unashamed free market capitalist. Ah. I firmly believe that while it may not be kind, uh, a free market encourages innovation. It encourages the development of disruptive technology and it brings out the best and worst in human nature. So I, I think that as a downturn goes, it's part of a cycle. Anybody that's been in this business for more than 20 years knows that they've seen the ups, they've seen the downs. Sometimes it's political. Sometimes it's, it's production-oriented technological. Sometimes it's transportation. But it goes up and it goes down. Um, this, too, will go back up. But the flip side is, and then it will go back down at some point. So it's, it's how do we actually take advantage of the downturn? And for oil and gas, particularly industry... Uh, um, you know, practitioners, they have to take this time to hone their strategies. They have to think about how are they actually going to maximize uh, the, the, the squeeze to ensure they've got the best and brightest talent. They've got to make certain that they are leveraging competitive advantage in a time when others are scrambling for survival. And then what will happen as it comes back up and picks up is those companies will have two steps ahead. Think of a horse race. If you could open the gate to one horse two seconds before every other horse, that horse is going to win almost every time. And so in this downturn, this is the time actually to do our most development work and our deepest thinking. Um, so ultimately, as we, as we kind of focus on the woe of where we are now, we should also look for what the next five years are going to bring. It is unlikely that the price of oil is going to stick at $20, get back to $20, or get down to $14 a barrel. It's going to stay at $50 for a while. The analysts are roughly agreement, you know, and then this is going to start to creep back up. The question is, when does it bump? And the smartest executives like you, Santosh, are going to guess that point in advance, and you're going to take advantage of that and make some decisions that will leverage your ability to, to be successful when it does take its rise back up. Very nice. That's great discussion and wonderful insights into what's happening in oil and gas industry uh, and what's going to happen. We'll take a short break and we'll be back shortly. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN.
Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Welcome back to Global Business with Mahesh Joshi. We are discussing the uh, impact of oil and gas industry and global business with Santosh and Mike. It's been a very interesting discussion. A lot of good fundamental facts and theories and, and practices uh, were discussed, and we are getting into the very exciting last phase of this discussion. And in this section, we are going to look at uh, how do we see the role of oil and gas in global business in future? Will it have increasing impact or it will have less impact on the global business? You know, maybe I'll set the basis. Uh, if we were to recap the conversation and say there are two uses for oil and gas, uh, one for the generation of power and the other for the production of consumable goods. I don't see the production of consumable goods going down as the population grows and various countries grow at their, at their individual rates. Uh, I also don't see alternative technologies to replace uh, our, our reliance on plastics and other hydrocarbon derivatives. Uh, if you look at uh, the other component, energy, uh, you know, one could argue that renewables, even though they, there is uh, more of a presence of electric cars around, even Houston for that matter, you know, an energy town, um, I see uh, many electric-driven cars in my neighborhood. Uh, and I think that will continue to grow, and it will continue to grow at a very fast rate. But it's growing from a very small base, so the rate doesn't really matter. It's not material. Let's say the combined need uh, for energy uh, between oil and natural gas uh, is going to serve 50% uh, of, its, of the total energy needs, and all other renewables grow. Uh, we're still looking at either a steady state or a growth for the energy needs that are driven by oil and gas. Mike, what do you think? Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think that uh, if we think about sustainable energy source, we think about renewables, um, it would be fantastic if we could utilize those as energy source, and not because uh, it challenges the oil and gas, but because, again, it creates that free market environment where we make better use of the oil and gas resources we have. Uh, unfortunately... There's too much money to be made on oil and gas right now. So there's not a chance of the renewables bootstrapping their own funding for development and to replace uh, the mainstream utilization for power generation. Um, in places where we see that growing, such as in Europe and in certain portions, states of the United States, it's almost always legislated and almost always built on a carbon footprint or emissions control. And what that does is it changes the balance of cost. And so it becomes too expensive to use uh, oil or gas production specifically oil, and then, you know, in old days, coal, um, and to use some other form of alternative energy. Uh, but I do know that companies are putting a lot of time and effort into it, and McEntee at GE right now is really taking a look at the renewable side of the business, and they've, they've had some pretty significant wins in, in how to effectively and commercially deploy uh, that type of technology. 
Um, we're in for a state of change. Uh, my wife is a European, and they're very conscious about environmental impact. And I told them if they want to actually impact the environment, have everybody drive Ford 250 diesel engines and burn up as much of the oil and gas as possible, and then it will require society to actually generate <laughs> and put money into renewable development. Uh, it's, they're, they're actually slowing down that process by driving those fuel-efficient cars themselves. Um, likely to say I'm not very welcome to holiday discussions for that sort of information. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting, and I would think that we see a future uh, on non-oil and gas energy generation, but we're not going to see that future for 20 to 30 years, and it is not going to mature for 50. So, you know, within my own business, I see that often. You know, our, um, you know, our contribution of revenue from uh, power generation, natural gas-driven power generation turbine manufacturers and wind turbine manufacturers, wind, to your point, Mike, bolstered by production tax credits uh, with a further five-year extension, is buoyant, you know. Uh, as an industry, they cannot stand alone without uh, without government support, if you will, uh, at least not yet. Uh, but they are uh, investing pretty heavily in new technologies, wind and more efficient uh, aeroderivative gas turbine manufacturing, for instance. Um, all that said, the growth of those un unconventional sources of energy, despite high percentage points, uh, in terms of just quantums, uh, aren't there to replace the the fifty percent or higher need of energy that you know that has to be served. Uh, you know, I'm optimistic. Yes, we'll go through more ups and downs to a point that you made, uh, Mike, earlier. Uh, I'm optimistic that you know, again, as an oil and gas executive, that our industry is going to bounce back and will be needed uh, for many years to come. Uh, I also clearly don't want to leave behind a world that's been, um, you know. Uh, stripped of all of its natural resources either. And I want to leave behind a world for my kids, and as we talk families, uh, that are less reliant on highly polluting or inefficient forms of energy, you know, to the extent, and, and you know, many of the larger companies, BP, for instance, you know, had this thing about beyond petroleum, Chevron's going green, you know, um, and I think those are the right things to do. But in terms of um, not being able to rely on oil and gas for the next 15, 20, 30, perhaps my lifetime, uh, is probably, you know, somewhat of an um, uneducated notion. And, and I come back to the point we made earlier about the geopolitical influence. Uh, the ability to rely on locally produced energy sources uh, allows you to reduce the influence that folks outside your city, county, state, nation, collection of nations has over, over your decision-making processes and the political agendas that are going on. And so that, that level of independence for... Uh, those precious commodities influences, the, I think, the state of nature of the communities in which we live. Um, and so the ability to actually generate some of that independence while having a good economic balance of trade uh, is probably the happy state that we would, should seek but will never perfectly attain. If, if, if you were to believe generally that um, you know, net importers of energy have more diversified industries and more stable um, nations, and net exporters of energy tend to be uh, less stable or more reliant on one commodity, um, you know, that, that poses other strategic questions. If you were Germany and you're highly reliant on natural gas from Russia, uh, you know, you're likely going to wean yourself off natural gas anyway. Uh, if you, uh, Venezuela is a good example, right? Most people think that Venezuela is, you know, only exports. Uh, Venezuela actually imports quite a bit of North American light crude 
so that their heavy crude can actually be processed through their uh, refineries. Uh, in fact, as we speak, I believe there are four ships with North American light crude that are anchored outside Caracas that they can't unload because Venezuela can't afford to pay them, right? Yeah, which, which tells me that, you know, um, uh, th- th- there is more to it than just producing oil. There is more to it than uh, just consuming oil or its byproducts. Uh, there is as much a geopolitical slash global leadership balance of power, which I know, Mike, you've got all kinds of nice things to say about, uh, that that would impact uh, perhaps for another day. The last thing I want to add to that before I give it back to Mahesh is the point you made earlier. We're just now talking about energy. But if we're going to look at the, the role oil and gas has on future impact of, of business and economies, it's going to be in petrochemicals. It's going to be in, in, in durable goods. It's going to be in the consumerized products. And that's not going away anytime soon, particularly as the rise of the middle class has an increase in demand rise with it. That's a very good point. As you said, the rise of middle class, the, the main drivers, the key drivers behind growing demand for energy and in turn the growth of oil and gas industry are population and income. And the growth of middle class, uh, it contributes to income And if you look back, a country like China, which has been uh, opening up since 1978 and growing, in their economic growth process, they have pulled 800 million people out of poverty as per World Bank. Now, they're all moving towards middle class, which is uh, increasing the demand for energy. On the other end, the total global population in next 20 years is supposed to be growing from 7.3 billion to almost 8.8 billion. And that's going to drive a lot of demand. And also quickly looking at who benefits from cheap oil. These are the two big Asian giants who are consuming more than anybody else today, China and India. And India is growing north of 7%. China has been and still will keep growing at a larger pace, but may not be at seven, seven and a half, but still good enough. The demand probably will keep growing along with their increase in standard of living and improvement in economy. The strange fact about India and China, they import a lot of crude oil. Both are net importer. China imports more than 80% of its crude, but both are net exporter of refined products. So they are processing crude. The demand is going to keep going up. And uh, thank you, uh, Mike. Thank you, Santosh. Uh, really appreciate you joining us today. It's been a very exciting discussion. A lot of facts, a lot of figures, and a lot of good insights into oil and gas industries. Let me share some more with you. Uh, it's supposed to be in 347 AD when oil wells were drilled in China up to 800 feet deep. And this was done using bits attached to bamboo poles. And the length of pipelines in the planet today, transporting oil and gas, is humongous. It is almost 3.5 million kilometers. And if we just looked at U.S. alone, the pipeline for natural gas distribution could stretch from Earth to Moon almost seven to eight times. That's the magnitude of supporting infrastructure for oil and gas industry. And also, if you're not using a pipeline, 
40% of all seaborne cargo is oil. And in United States, at one point of time, Rockefeller single-handedly controlled 90% of the American oil industry. The U.S. has 4% of the world's population, but consumes 25% of the world's crude oil. And you can imagine what kind of resources go into reaching to the resources of oil and gas to take them out. Time magazine dubbed the Hibernia platform, a Canadian offshore oil field, as the eighth wonder of the world. It is the largest object to be ever towed at 1.2 million tons. Well, thank you, uh, Mike. Thank you, Santosh. Very interesting discussions. And uh, uh, we'll close the show here. And um, we will be back next week with the third episode of Global Business with Mahesh Yoshi. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Santosh. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.